Good evening and welcome to Bird Calls from the Knoll Foundation Studios here at Red River Radio. Tonight's program is made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. To take your calls tonight, we have a phone bank of volunteers. We invite you to call in with your questions about our feathered friends and the avian world at 800-552-8502. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host of Bird Calls, which has been on the air here at Red River Radio for over 10 years. I'll be introducing our guest in just a bit, and we'll be ready to answer your questions about birds this evening. So let's hear from you by calling us soon at 1-800-552-8502. So we always start off the show with a recap of the conservation tip from the previous episode from August. And we talked about something that's very dear to me and my wife in our house, and that's uh, community-supported agriculture, what's known as a CSA. And we belong to one in uh, north of Nacogdoches in App- uh, called Appleby Farm in Appleby, Texas. It's a few, few miles north of us. And we've been members for, I don't know, a dozen years, 10 for sure. And it to me, it gives us a little touch of what it would, would have been like in the old days where you've got to provide your own food. And so we, we're, we're very fortunate to have Appleby Farm, to have a couple by the name of the Pruitts that do all the, the labor. And of course, part of being a member of a CSA is you can also volunteer your time physical help doing weeding and mulching or harvesting the weekly bounties but but the key is to have the farm uh, where the people that own and run the farm are interested in doing what a CSA does and that's growing organic food free of herbicides free of pesticides uh, no artificial fertilizers and and as members you're a paid member of the CSA you get to get a piece of the bounty of whatever food is uh, available that month, that week, whatever's in season, for example. Uh, We love it. We've learned a lot. Um, It makes me appreciate uh, food a lot more, especially when it's grown and how it's grown and, and, and you look at the weather differently. You're like, wow, I can really see how what a drought does or the opposite, a flood does to a farm. So we, we love it, the fresh veggies. Um, you know, I'm not a, I wasn't a huge fan of cauliflower, but the cauliflower that they grow, it doesn't even look like the cauliflower that you get at the grocery store, and the taste is off the charts better uh, from, a, from a local farm. Plus, you can often eat stuff the same day it's been harvested, and let me tell you, there's nothing better than that fresh taste. So investigate in your area if you've got a CSA, become a member. Uh, take part in in learning how all this works, and uh, and I think you'll you'll enjoy it. And if a CSA doesn't uh, occur in your area, think about finding a farm and a farmer uh, that would be interested in starting a CSA. And you can go online and look for what a community supported agriculture is all about, and how to get started. So yeah, join a CSA. You'll you'll not be disappointed. So. Before we get to our profile species, I thought I'd mention a couple things. Right now, uh, at our latitude, if you're listening to the Red River Radio listening area where we're located, um, it, it's 
the peak of southbound ruby-throated hummingbird migration, and it's been really a good year. Uh, for me in my backyard, my wife and I noticed after a little cool snap in late August, um, the numbers bumped up, and it, it has been just great. And September's always the month of southbound hummingbirds, ruby throats for us. So if you're listening in Arizona, this doesn't apply to you. If you're listening to Wisconsin, we're looking at your birds that have already left you, and these birds are pouring through our listening area as they head south uh, for wintering grounds in Mexico and parts of Central America. So uh, if you're interested in, in attracting these hummingbirds, it's not too late to get a feeder and put it up. It's uh, very important to do the, the nectar just right. It's four parts water and one part sugar. It doesn't need any coloring, no dyes. Uh, the red should be in the uh, plastic of the feeder. If not, you can hang a red rag, a red, ha red handkerchief, um, something like that, because the red is simply the neon sign telling the hummingbird, hey, come over here, and uh, that's what you want. So, so hopefully people are enjoying their southbound ruby-throated hummingbirds. They'll leave us uh, in the next few weeks, and they'll come back in, in the middle of March. And if you're lucky, you might have a overwintering hummingbird. So it's an old wives' tale that says, you gotta take your feeder down or the hummingbirds won't leave. Uh, trust me, your feeder is not that powerful to uh, override their wiring that tells them to migrate. So when they migrate, when they're ready to migrate, they'll go dis despite your feeder is so super fresh and full of food, they'll go. So, but there's some hummingbirds that will stay and overwinter with us and without that feeder, it, they might likely perish, especially after a cold snap that might knock out all the flowers and nectar giving plants for them. So the feeder might get them through the winter. So leave your hummingbird feeder up at our latitude um, and, and uh, hopefully you'll get to see this, uh, these ruby throats that are just pouring through in big numbers right now. It's been great. And, and also I wanted to mention lawn watering because we've had a pretty good drought in the listening area and beyond in the country. And, uh, you know, if you're going to water your lawn, I'm not opposed to that, but I can't believe I see people doing it in the heat of the day. It's just wrong. You're, you, you know, you have to think about those droplets that are blowing in the wind um, or evaporating quickly in the sun or laying on the droplets laying on your plants and acting like a magnifying glass to the hot sun. So always water in the morning or the evening um, or even through the night. Um, you know, there'll be people that tell you don't do it the night because you'll get molds. You're not supposed to be watering every night. So if you're just watering like me, you know, every couple of weeks, uh, that's not a problem. But just just save water make it do what you want and get to the plant and it's not doing that in the middle of the day because there's the chance of breeze is higher and the sun of course is is working against you and because i see a lot of lawn watering at noon two o'clock four o'clock and i'm just like ah so consider doing your lawn watering at those times when it works best for the plants so let's get into our profile species tonight we're gonna co uh, cover the painted bun bunting. Easily our nation's most colorful species, this small songbird known as the painted bunting can go completely unnoticed as it sits in shrubs or brush. 
If, however, you learn this song we're about to play, they can be easy to locate by ear. With the windows rolled down in my truck, I can hear this species singing in May through July along brushy fence roads while I'm driving, say, 50 miles an hour down county roads. So birding by ear is key. The sparrow-sized painted bunning is a mix of several colors. Adult males are absolutely gaudy, with purplish heads, red undersides, and yellow-green backpacks. Females need to blend in while incubating their precious eggs and nestlings, so they're a unicolored lime green color like that of fresh leaves. First-year males look just like the female, which can cause great confusion when an observer sees an all-green female-looking bunting singing like a colorful male. This is because a male-painted bunting exhibits what we call delayed plumage maturation, where males of this species take two years to obtain the gaudy colors. Painted bunnings prefer scrubby areas with a mix of grass and brush or woodland edges along brushy, brushy pastures or fence rows. The stronghold of painted bunnings occurs in the south central part of the U.S., breeding in Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, and a few surrounding states. There's also a disjunct and declining southeastern U.S. breeding population found along the coastal plain of northern Florida, north barely to North Carolina. Painted bunnings are a migratory species that leave the breeding grounds in fall for southerly wintering locations like southern Florida and Cuba or Mexico south through much of Central America. They return to their breeding grounds in April. Buntings eat predominantly seed and fruit, Lucky backyard birders often spot this bunting at their seed feeders during northbound migration in April. And in mild parts of the Gulf Coast, the occasional wintering bunting might come to a bird feeder full of black oil sunflower seeds. To see a stunning photo of a male painted bunting snapped by James Childress, so stunning that it's been the wallpaper on my cell phone for years, please visit the Bird Calls page at redriverradio.org. Okay, tonight I'm very excited to have an in-studio guest. Tonight is uh, Pauline Tom with the Texas Bluebird Society and Cornell Labs program Nest Watch. Uh, Pauline lives in Central Texas and Pauline, welcome and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Cliff. Actually, uh, coming up this way, I saw that was close to Stonewall, where my mother was born. Oh. I'm a Texan. I was born in Pasadena. My school years were spent there in Pasadena. I was the oldest of three. When I went to college, I didn't go very far. I went to Houston Baptist, which is now Houston Christian University. While I was there, I went on a college and career retreat with my church, and that's where my husband-to-be had been sent by his mom because he had gotten just graduated from Texas A&M University, not yet going to officer's training. She needed him out of her hair. So he will tell you we met in a parking lot, mm -hmm. and there's some degree of truth to that. <laughs> 
uh, after we got engaged, we spent that year engaged while he was in Vietnam. When he returned, we married, right away went back to uh, College Station, was the first place that we lived. That's um, where our first daughter was born. We had about two and a half years there when he got his master's. Uh, He got it the very week that she was, the weekend that she was born. Mm -hmm. I was in the hospital when he was going through the graduation. Then, uh, Then within a week, we moved to Irving, Texas, the second place where we lived. That's where he was working. It was when we were in Irving for about five or six years. The second daughter was born. Also, that's when on trips to my parents' lake house, in their bathroom, there was a National Geographic magazine, and it uh, it talked about Larry Zeleny and the the plight of the eastern bluebirds. And so I got bluebirds into my heart at that time. I cared about them very much, uh, having no idea they would become much more part of my life later. When uh, we left Irving, we went to Houston for the years that the girls were in school. Then, uh, then it was time uh, that when Rhonda graduated, we moved to Central Texas. We live in Mountain City. My husband, Ron Tom, will tell you there's not any mountains and it's not much of a city. Mm-hmm. Tell us where it is. It's south of Austin and north of San Marcos, so in the edge of the hill country. Mm-hmm. Great. So, sounds like uh, you you moved all over Ir- Irving. For those that are listening, that's a little burb of Dallas. That Dallas is kind of absorbed on the west side of town, and uh, so you you've been a Texan all your life, mm-hmm. and and we're, we're having a good time here in Louisiana, aren't we? Especially since your mom was born just uh, what twenty minutes south of here. Yes, very neat. You're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host. We have Pauline Tom. She's a bluebird aficionado, and she's here to talk about bluebirds tonight. The phone number here for anyone that's interested in asking questions, the number here is 800-552-8502. Again, 800-552-8502. So, Pauline, tell us a little bit about what got you started in the world of bluebirds, and approximately when did that happen? Well, Cliff, first I'll need to tell you what got me into the world of birds. Okay. That's when we moved to Central Texas. I can very clearly remember one Sunday morning in April. I looked in my mirror, I was getting ready for church, and there was this gorgeous bird out on the chain link fence sitting on the rail. And it was, it was indigo and red and chartreuse. I remember going to church just praising God for thanking, making that beautiful little bird. And somebody at church has talked about it, said, that's a painted bunting, Mm. the bird of tonight. Wow, coincidence. (laughs) Yes. Nice one. So uh, that was the time for me to get binoculars and a field guide. Then with the binoculars and the field guide, I needed to find out how to use them. I learned that there was a class taking place at Perdinellis Falls State Park, which is about an hour Mm -hmm. from us. We went to that class. When we went out to, now this is the part where it's getting started with bluebirds. We went out to see the birds with the binoculars. I saw bluebird for the very first time. All right. 
just amazing and it was because Travis Audubon had put out nest foxes there. Mm -hmm. Even at this beautiful state park, they weren't really seeing bluebirds until nest foxes were installed. Then the bluebirds appeared and people could see the bluebirds at the nest boxes. Nice, very nice. So um, you, you co-founded the Texas Bluebird Society in 2001. That's not an easy task. And you served as president for 20 years. Wow. So please tell us about the Texas Bluebird Society and where they're based and what they do. Well, Texas Bluebird Society is virtual. There's all, it's all volunteers, so it's not based in anywhere. Uh, there, uh, the Texas Bluebird Society teaches people that by putting out a nest box, they can provide the element in the habitat that's missing and uh, for an otherwise well-suited habitat and that there's a need to plant natives, to, uh, to plant native, uh, natives that attract insects and natives that provide berries that mm -hmm. will provide food for mm -hmm. the bluebirds. Great. The, the Texas Bluebird Society has built over 20,000 nest boxes now, wow. Wow. like a handful of volunteers who are certified nest box builders for our official Texas nest box. That's uh, impressive. That I'm sure the bluebirds thank you for it too. So that's a lot of, a lot of help to the bluebirds. You're, again, you're listening to Bird Calls. The number here is 800-552-8502. If you have a question for Pauline about bluebirds or if you have any old question about any other birds for me, um, we are here, 800-552-8502. If not, I have lots of questions for Pauline. And let's move along here to, uh, Pauline, there are three species of bluebirds in the U.S. So the, let's, let's briefly describe those to listeners and, and which one we're most likely to see here in the listening area. Well, there's the eastern and the western and the mountain, and all three of those are the bluebird of happiness. Okay. So uh, the blue, you hear about the bluebird of happiness, these three species, that's it. It's because it's no way to explain, but people see a bluebird, and so often it conjures up positive feelings of hope and happiness and joy. It happened to me even today today yes what happened? well I was coming out to get in the car to go to this show set my sister's in hemp hill my sister and my husband Ron Tom said uh, there are bluebirds there Ron and I had put up a nest box a couple years ago and right there at her place there was a male bluebird above that nest box we watched it took some photos and then there was the female right at the bird bath there right. so it was like amazing oh, yeah. it dropped from heaven and I get the happiness thing I mean I, I, I my jaw drops every time I see a mountain bluebird because it's solid blue and they, these are found typically out west and they're sky blue with nothing else and they're just remarkable so where we are here in the listening area we have the eastern bluebird which you know there are several species of bluebirds blue space birds but this is the one word bluebird it's blue on top, reddish chest, um, you know, and like you said, happiness. Because I, I see them there, you know, they have good posture. They sit up straight. They're active. They're looking around. Uh, they come close to our house. 
um, or in, you know if you put up an S box, they're going to inspect it and hopefully use it. So all of that, I, I agree, it is definitely a bird of happiness. Uh, so tell us, Pauline, about the Texas Bluebird Society. Uh, you know, they you sell bluebird boxes, but do you also have blueprints available free online for listeners who would rather build uh, their own bluebird box? Yes, Texas Bluebird Society does sell nest boxes, but only in Texas. Mm. The plans are there, they're free, always have been. You go to the txblues.org and you can look for the building plans on the left side, click on it, and it'll bring, bring up a set of building plans. Um, some, one of, now this is a unique box, we call it the Texas Nest Box, that's really designed for the Texas conditions, which are the exact same conditions for this whole entire listening area. Mm -hmm. It's hot yeah. in the summer. That's the main condition. Large overhanging roof, uh, vents, half inch vents on either side instead of some holes in order to let the hot air mm -hmm. get out. Then uh, there's a one and a half inch or a one and nine sixteenths inch hole. No larger than that because then it would allow the starlings to get in, mm -hmm. the European starlings, which are, have been great competitors when out in the trees, when uh, nesting in the woodpecker hole in the cavity of a tree for this cavity nesting bird, the starlings can get in. Mm -hmm. I've seen that at my house. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, and then the other thing is, it's large enough for the bluebird to get in. So uh, this, just the perfect size so that whole size is important yep so don't play around with the whole size and like like you said go to txblues.org for the free blueprints and you don't have to write down that uh, diameter of that entrance hole because it's on those blueprints if, if you'd like to build your own box so um, tell us a little bit about other cavity competitors that want to use a bluebird box we talked about this on the drive here and you you you, you told me that they're cavity friends and i agree because i i love seeing chickadees and titmice and other birds that use boxes because not every bird uses a box it's a very small percentage in the bird world that it will use a a cavity or a nest box but tell tell us about some other other, other species that want to use a box especially a, will come into a bluebird box yes and they're mostly smaller birds so the carolina wren the carolina chickadee the um, uh, buicks wren in central texas um there's uh the tufted titmouse tufted, pit, mm -hmm. tufted titmouse black-crested titmouse yeah. where i am yeah pretty neat so so what we recommend on, on the show, we've talked about this, and I'm sure you do too, is we recommend not just putting one box out. Put up several boxes, face them in a variety of directions because you never know, A, what bird's going to use it, and B, if they're going to like it and the height and the direction and whatever else is around that might set them off. You know, they're, they're kind of, I've seen bluebirds. They're, they're kind of like uh, new homeowners, you know, he, he's, he flies to the box, he's like, honey, come over here. She flies over and they're getting in it and looking around and checking it out. And if something's wrong, they're not gonna use it and they'll move on. So, so the thing to think about is have multiple boxes up and maybe one of those they'll call home. 
And yes, Cliff, even if a smaller bird calls it home, there's value in putting a um, a smaller hole over. Put a block of wood with a one and a quarter inch hole, or buy a a, a portal, a metal mm-hmm. portal, and because even the bluebirds could usurp the nest box and take away the nest yeah. of those smaller birds. Right. So they're all our friends. They're, right. They have greater need right. than the bluebird. <laughs> And, and you, you mentioned it perfectly earlier about the European starling. That's a non-native bird that is in all 48 states of the lower 48 here in the U.S. And it didn't occur here 150 years ago. They have exploded um, and they are cavity nesters. So what they do is they kind of loaf and wait and watch the red-bellied or red-headed woodpecker build a cavity and does all the work. And then the super aggressive starling goes in and kicks the woodpeckers out and takes over the cavity. And like you said, for bluebird boxes, just keeping that critical diameter of the whole entrance hole just right, then the starling's too big. He's slightly larger than the the bluebird and he can't get in. So yeah, we don't want to make this uh, public housing for starlings, do we? That's right. (laughs) Okay, we're still on the topic of bluebirds. This is Cliff Shackleford. You're listening to Bird Calls. The number here is 800 five five two eight five zero two if you have a question about bluebirds now's your chance while we have pauline tom here from central texas if you want to talk about other stuff uh, other bird stuff uh, you can also talk to me about that eight hundred five five two eight five zero two and pauline we were just talking about bluebird boxes so let's talk a little bit about the predators that are trying to eat the contents inside the box um, and, and also house sparrows that we don't want to attract either. What, what can you tell us about predators that want to eat the box, how you eat the stuff in the box, how you can avoid that, and maybe explain a little bit about house sparrows if you could. Certainly. Well, uh, common predators are uh, raccoons and squirrels. So that would be a reason to uh, mount a nest box not on a tree where it would be a box lunch. Then uh, the best way the, uh, is, would be to put it on a slick pole. Mm-hmm. And an w- easy way to do that is an EMT conduit where it can be purchased at the hardware store, attach EMT uh, uh, clamps onto the back of it and uh, affix it to the nest box. You can get a slightly smaller piece of EMT conduit, hammer it in the ground Mm -hmm. as an anchor, then put the longer piece uh, in the ground, slide it right over. Or a small piece of, of, uh, oh gosh, I'm blanking. Rebar. Rebar, thank you. I'm having a a, a little brain uh, freeze there, but rebar is a great thing Mm -hmm. to pound in the ground and slide that conduit over it. Yes, especially if you're in central Texas with me, like me, with limestone underneath. Oh yeah, that's that's tough. But so, the uh, house sparrows? Yeah. Yeah. I, house sparrows are very difficult. Um, it's a huge subject. I would suggest going to Cialis. This is not, this is S-I-A-L-I-S dot org. It's the website of Bet Zimmerman Smith. She has a very thorough everything you could possibly want to know about bluebirds and search for house sparrow. Mm. It gives 
quite a few ways to deal with house sparrows. Yeah. And Cialis, of course, is the genus of the bluebird. So. It's not the male enhancement drug, yeah. is what Bet oh, says. Oh, yeah, I didn't <laughs> think of that. Why would I think of that, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's S-I-A-L-I-S. Right. Right, very good. So, okay, so house sparrows, like we mentioned, the European starling, we don't really want to provide housing for the house sparrow either. He, he and she are also non-native. Um, they have exploded. They're, they're the little sparrow with the male has the black bib and they'll nest in your light fixtures under your eave of your house. Um, you'll see them nesting in uh, stoplights on the, on the, on, at the intersection. I mean, just crazy where they will the, they'll nest. So don't provide homes for those uh, because they don't belong here, but we certainly want to provide homes for our bluebird. So, Pauline, bluebirds aren't the only birds in the U.S. that are predominantly blue. There are other birds that are mostly blue that we might see that we could maybe confuse with a bluebird. So let's, let's mention a few of those. What else is blue in the bird world? Well, there's the blue jay, the indigo uh, bunting. Mm -hmm. Even some people will see a painted bunting and see the blue back mm -hmm. and the red on the front and think that that's a bluebird from right. the description. And the blue grosbeak is another one. So th there's not a whole lot of blue space birds, but the, the bluebird one word is what we're, we're really talking about. But there's a few other bluebirds, and there's definitely different jays depending on where you are in the country. You go farther out west, you'll have Stellar's jays. In central Texas, you have the Woodhouse scrub jay, um, and there's the Florida scrub jay. There's several other jays that are blue but very different. I mean, they're a different chassis, different bird, completely different from uh, the eastern bluebird that we're really focusing on today. Uh, one Christmas, I got a Christmas present from a brother and sister-in-law, and it was a framed image of a barn swallow. They saw the indigo back and the uh, chestnut oh, or you know, reddish yeah. front and thought it was a bluebird. Yeah, yeah, they have the color of it, but yeah, but but uh, you know, when you start paying attention to what that swallow is doing and flying around in the air and catching insects and and uh, making a mud nest and you do a little research, that none of that fits, does it? So yeah, there are a lot of other birds that would have blue on them um, that could be confusing. So. Uh, but it's it's really a, a neat thing to, you know, find a species you like, um, get involved, uh, learn as much as you can about it. And once you've mastered that, you know, you might realize you want to, you know, you've, you've learned that, oh, bluebird, well, I need to get into nest boxes. And now you're all of a sudden you're buying a, a compound miter saw and, and a power drill and you're putting up boxes. And, and then you're, you mentioned it earlier, you need to provide berry giving trees and, and shrubs and all of a sudden you're you're putting in in plants and you're building what we call a wildscape and we talk about a lot on the show is providing uh, native plants that give back to birds not just green for us not just bright colors for us but they have pollen uh, nectar uh, for the for the pollinators they've got um, berries nuts and so forth and and then the, the thing we don't always think about is they're and we don't always appreciate is they're attracting insects. And you mentioned that earlier is you want to have native plants that attract native insects because birds like bluebirds are going to do their job and eat those insects and that's what they need to survive. So there's a lot you can do once you start digging into these birds. Cliff, on the Texas Bluebird Society website, and the shortcut is txblues.org, 
there is a two-sided plant list. Oh, on perfect. one side, it's plants that attract insects, and on the other side, plants that provide uh, berries. Okay. Some of them are on both sides, because when you think about it, when a plant uh, blooms, uh, before it has the berry or the fruit, the insects come to that uh, bloom, that That's blossom. Right. That's right. So it's, it's really cool. That That's you neat. So you've done the homework for people that are maybe listening going, well, I have no idea what to plant that would give berries. So go to txblues.org and there's the list. It's right in the center, in the first paragraph at the top, uh, the end of the sentence. It's uh, underlined with a link. Great. That's You've done the hard part. So as a listener, you just got to go to that website, txblues.org, and, and do the rest. Find the plant that fits in your uh, soil type and where you live and and give it a few years. You know, people expect plants to immediately take ground and immediately do what they're supposed to do. But, you know, often we buy plants when they're really little and we have to remember uh, the, th the three rules goes by three years and that's sleep, creep, and leap. So the first year, the plant doesn't look like it's doing anything, it's sleep. The next year, yeah, it moved a little bit, it grew a little bit, that's the creep. And then the third growing season, leap it's all of a sudden you know that turk's cap has gotten really big and sprouting all these flowers and same with the beauty berry so just keep that in mind that that the plants we're talking about you need to give them a little time it's not going to be immediate but you won't regret it because you'll get years and years out of it and with a wildscape you have a lot less things to do you know pulling weeds every now and then um, versus, you know, the, the lawn that needs mowing every seven or eight days, you're spending a lot more time on that lawn than you would be on the wildscape. And more birds are going to be in your wildscape than in your lawn. So you're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackleford. I've got Pauline Tom here from Central Texas. The number here, if you'd like to ask a question, is 800-552-8502. And I'm going to keep asking some questions here because uh, I'm wondering is maybe our phone lines down everything's working okay come on folks let's hear from you 800-552-8502 we need something for pauline on bluebirds i've got lots of questions but i we, we want to hear from you so pauline when is the best time of the year to install a bluebird nest box well always today is the mm -hmm. best day so that you don't forget about it and have it on the garage floor right but Really, now is the best time. Now, when, when is this? Now in September, September. Because in October, the bluebirds are going to, the most bluebirds will be flying over. The bluebirds that are going to stay here for the winter are moving around with their family groups. And the ones who are, are migrating farther south from up farther north will be coming over. Mm -hmm. Bluebirds are looking for a hole. That's uh, what they see, and they see it from way high in the sky. So they can see your hole and remember that this is a possibility for a nesting site when they uh, break off into pairs mm -hmm. in early in the year and uh, select a nesting site. They'll, they'll, they'll remember your nest box hole and come, come use it. That's great. I hope so. Um, and historically, you know, we didn't, we didn't always have people building boxes and putting them up. So historically, before humans, before we settled, bluebirds were using natural cavities, like where a limb breaks off and it rots, or a woodpecker. 
an old woodpecker cavity. Um, you'll see, you know, old downy woodpecker where you are, ladderback woodpecker makes a perfect size hole for a bluebird. So these boxers are just doing kind of what Mother Nature did and providing uh, a hollow via this the rotten limb that I mentioned or the old woodpecker hole. So uh, nest boxes really help a lot of birds and it certainly helped our, our eastern bluebird. So Pauline, what are some options for where to install a bluebird nest box? Uh, you mentioned the slick pole, um, but how about where and what in the yard and what should your yard look like and, and which direction maybe you'd point it? Okay, short grass so they can see the insects on the ground. You need to have some uh, high limbs or wires, something where they can look down to protect their nest and uh, grab insects, mm -hmm. see the insects and grab them and uh, somewhat open space. It doesn't need to be totally open space. You might have seen f paintings of birds, uh, bluebird nest boxes uh, way out in the open. That's not necessary and often not best because in Texas there's some value in having shade from the late afternoon sun. So somewhat open mm. area. You know, uh, in uh, Austin at Hornsby Bend out near the airport, mm -hmm. there's a pecan orchard, mm -hmm. and that is where the bluebirds have nested. They put out in the open area around the ponds, put nest boxes, but the place where the bluebirds chose to nest was because what, they were under the canopy mm -hmm. of tall pecan trees. Yeah. So they, that's where they uh, chose to nest, on the edge of those uh, pecan nice. trees. Nice. Oh, and what else did you ask? Oh, um, like what direction it should face, oh. if that matters, or if that's possible. Because you kind of want to make sure that you can see it from your patio or your window where you're having your coffee. Um, but if you have a, if you have all 360 degrees, what would you, what's the optimum direction to face it? Uh, it's found that somewhat easterly is usually best. Uh, you're not going to want to put it where the hole has the incoming rain. Mm -hmm. Many places that's from the north, mm -hmm. so that you would want to, you would not want to have that. Another thing to watch for is to have it placed where there is a bush or a tree out from, straight out from the hole. So when the birds fledge, when they leave the nest for the first time, and they're going to be leaving that nest box. Right. It's not their house, it's just yeah. for nesting. <laughs> when they leave, that they have some place to fly and they're not just going down to the ground where they would be subject to predation. Yeah, or fire ants, which yes. we're gonna talk about later, hint, hint, um, in the closing remarks. So, okay, those are some good tips. And uh, so if someone's in, you know, a deep, dark, thick forest, that's not really where you're gonna find bluebirds. You, you Like you mentioned, it's gotta be fairly open, so scattered trees. Um, you're, you're describing a lot of our backyards and a lot of our city parks, uh, maybe even soccer fields, that kind of uh, look to it with the edges. Cemeteries. Um, cemeteries, okay, that's it. So if people get an idea of that, how what we talk about when we say open. Um, so we're not talking about um, 500 acre uh, hay meadow. So, and plus a hay meadow with nothing but non-native grass is not going to be attractive to the insects that feed the bluebird, and it's probably not going to have the, the, the cavities that they use, but like you mentioned, you can put up the box, 
Um, but the thing is, it, there's a lot of good properties people have that would be conducive for bluebirds, but we have to remember it's not going to be for everyone because you might, you know, you might be living um, in, in that deep, dark forest, like I mentioned. Uh, we have that a lot with people that want purple martins. Their, their neighbors have a purple martin box and they're wondering why they don't get one. And I try to tell people, well, the neighbor that had them first, they, those are the purple martins for the whole neighborhood, for the whole big area there. And you can't stick another nest uh, for purple martins in there and expect to get the same thing. And then also people with closed canopy, like you mentioned with Hornsby Bend with the pecan grove, you can't put a blue a purple martin box under the canopy. They just don't like it. They want to be out in the open. So the good thing is the bluebird is a lot easier to attract than purple martins. And, uh, and I think that's why you have a lot more people doing it. And you get a lot more return for your buck, don't you? on the bluebirds. Absolutely. Um, You're listening to Bird Calls. We have a few minutes left. This is Cliff Shackleford. I've got Pauline Tom here. We're talking about bluebirds. The phone number here is 800-552-8502. So let's see, Pauline, um, if a listener feels that they need to feed bluebirds, we talked about putting in a wildscape, but a lot of people think when they want to, you know, they want to feed a bluebird they got to put seeds out and we're doing that you know with our hummingbirds we're putting nectar feeders out but what do you recommend for people that that feel like it's got to be something on a feeder for a bluebird how do you respond to that well i I would say that bluebirds don't eat seeds they're not seed eaters Mm -hmm. so people will say i've had feeders out for 27 years and i've never seen a bluebird well, bluebirds don't come to seeds. Right. Uh, they may come to uh, sunflower uh, seed hearts, but they're not going to come to the sunflower seed unhauled. They uh, they can, I would say, put out beet first. Make sure you have out bird baths, clean yeah. bird baths. Uh, that would be uh, before a feeder. Some people feed mealworms. But mealworms are not something to put out as a food. They would be a snack Mm -hmm. occasionally. And the mealworms, which can be um, obtained online at much more reasonable price than uh, in bird stores, those uh, mealworms can be put in a refrigerator and they'll stay dormant. And you take just a few out at a time. those, uh, that would be possibility, but those, remember, those are mostly for humans. Mm-hmm. Those are so we can see them, and so your friends can see them, and that has value for the human. As the human becomes more uh, aware of nature right. around them, and what they can do, uh, what more can they do for the environment and for our, for our world yeah. uh, to care about it because they've seen a bluebird right. eating mealworms. Yeah, and so for feeding, I like what you said, provide the plants that that give us the berries that the bluebirds eat, that also the plants that attract the insects that the bluebird eats. If you wanna feed bluebirds, that's the way to do it. Uh, the mealworm method, you're talking about quitting your job <laughs> because you're, you're gonna be dealing with other birds that are gonna realize, hey, they're putting out free food, let's go. And those other birds might, you know, gobble up all the mealworms. And then depending on the time of the year, mealworms aren't going to last very long. Uh, so you're constantly having to deal with it. you got to almost train the bluebirds to come to it. And I know people do, 
figure that out. But I bet you they're not busy with four kids in school, uh, busy job, uh, soccer and piano practice, et cetera. Um, it's, it's just not gonna fit for the typical busy American uh, lifestyle. But for, for some people it might work, but the, the wildscape is the way to go. You don't have to babysit it 24 seven like you would a feeder. And it's just the way to go. So like Pauline mentioned, go to txblues.org, get that list of plants that are beneficial to bluebirds and start getting those in the ground and give them about three years or four years before it goes bonkers and you won't regret it. Um, so this is Bird Calls 800-552-8502. We just have a few minutes left. So we're gonna switch gears because Pauline's not only our bluebird expert, she's also been deeply involved in a Cornell Lab of Ornithology program called Nest Watch. So Pauline, tell us about what's involved and how can listeners participate in Nest Watch. Well, Nest Watch is the sister or cousin to eBird from as, as it relates to last month's guest. And rather than reporting a bird that you see, you report bird nest. It nice. can be any nest. A lot of times a person will look out and see in their bush a, uh, a mockingbird nest or they'll see a dove nest. Uh, any nest that is seen can be reported through Nest Watch. You don't go poking around at the nest. Oh no, so, absolutely. So in fact, when you, when you sign up for Nest Watch, there will be a short quiz and you'll uh, to teach you how to correctly look uh, monitor nest and to take a look at them and that you're not going to go when in the early morning when they may mm. be laying eggs you're not going to go when it's raining you're not going to make a beeline back and forth to the nest because that will make show the predators exactly where to go. Yeah. You know, I, I read that you know even from the air or the side, anywhere the, the uh, predators can be watching, yeah. and you can take them exactly to a nest if you're going making a beeline back and forth. All this will be it's called the code of conduct, yeah. and so you answer ten questions, make sure you get them right before you start with Nest Watch. And as soon as when you see the nest, you'll uh, go and report. I saw uh, some grass in the nest. Uh, there'll be a, a dot, a marker. A nest watch will know exactly where with the GPS that mm -hmm. nest is. Mm -hmm. Then um, the, uh, you'll, uh, you might go back three or four days later, which is a suggested time during nesting season, and see, oh, there's one egg. Mm. Then another four days later, if it's a bluebird laying one egg a day, there could be five eggs. Mm -hmm. Then you know it's about time for the incubation to start. Right, right. It's really, really cool. And then you'll see, uh, just keep on reporting every three or four days. Uh, go to Nest Watch, uh, put what you saw, and it will be so, it will be valuable beyond yourself, beyond your own backyard, beyond your state. Nice. This is something that for science yeah. that's so easy to do with the phone, with the app on the phone, or also it's available with a computer. You yeah. can take notes. But and you mentioned eBird, and we talked about data sharing and citizen science. So yeah, this is a great example of how you can make your backyard part of a scientific project, um, and that's Nest Watch. And so I encourage people to look into that. 
and share their data and be a citizen scientist. You're listening to Bird Calls, 800-552-8502. We've got our first call. We've got John from Fishville. John, what do you have tonight? Well, Cliff, it's good to hear uh, the migratory things are going to start picking up again. Yeah. My question is, uh, when my cowbird's going to start showing up on the way south? There, yeah, it, it, as when it gets cooler, you're going to start seeing more cowbirds. So I think you're in luck. Um, in the, you know, within the next six weeks for sure, somewhere in there, you'll start seeing them pick up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, they really increased in this spring. I, I ended up counting over sixty a couple nights. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. So it's going to be interesting to see how many I see on the way south. Yeah. Well, just keep an eye out. Keep a notebook, John. Write the basics down, uh, the date, um, and what you're seeing, numbers of, of species per species. And and like we were talking about with Pauline, you might get into eBird and, and share those data. Um, mm-hmm. And you'll find that, you know, that after you look at your own data over the years, you'll see your own you know differences in numbers uh, per your sighting, so it's it's a lot of fun to get involved in that and, and to share those data. Yep, I'll do that. I'll I'll get my calendar out. Okay. Here and keep track. Okay, mm-hmm. great. Thanks for calling, John. We'll talk to you later. Keep up the good work, guys. Okay, thank you, sir. Okay, Pauline's. You know, we're talking about nests, and some birds they just nest in the weirdest, oddest places, like in the broken down tractor, the engine of the broken down tractor on the farm. Uh, tell us about some of your more interesting locations you observe birds' nests. Well, I think the most interesting for me was in our garage in a Home Depot fabric bag that was hanging on a shelf. Hmm. And the really interesting thing about this is that we close our garage doors at night and we close the side door at night. And I looked a little bit and realized that the uh, Buick's wren was coming in through the doggy door that had lost its flap. Really? Yes, yes. And so that's in and out in the early mornings of the hour of the day. And uh, it was very goodness, because what about when you're traveling? Even for two days, that can be really a problem. So doggy door without a flap worked really well. All right. That's good. One morning I went out to the garage and there were birds everywhere. So these little wrens had fledged and I had, so I opened the garage door so they could easily get out. Yeah. Fun. You know, I, I heard a story about someone missing their cat for a long time and it had gone into the neighbor's garage. They closed the door and went on a long trip and the people thought the cat ran away. Uh, so yeah, garages can be interesting with uh, our pets and, and wildlife, as you mentioned. And, and speaking of hummingbirds I talked about earlier, uh, hummingbirds can fly into garages and then go to the back window or the side window and just keep going at the window or go up to the ceiling and not get out. And you know, hummingbirds, when they freak out like they would if they went in a garage, they typically go up or they go to the light or both. And so what you wanna do, if you have a problem with hummingbirds coming to your, getting stuck in your barn, your garage, they're often seeing red or orange or something that's colorful to them inside the garage. Often it's the pull handle 
the emergency pull handle on your electric uh, garage doors and they're coming, they're like, hey, what's that red thing in there? I'll go check it out. And, and then they freak out and then they get stuck in there and they often die. So remove the remove the color. So that, that red handle, you can spray paint it black or another color or use electric tape or duct tape, get rid of the color. If you've got Tupperware that's red that has your Christmas gear, get rid of that color because that's pulling, that's attracting the hummingbirds into your garage. Now in your case with the Buick's Wren or we have the Carolina Wren here nesting, same thing, they'll go in garages. Um, I think if they, you know, I don't have garage doors, I have carport, no walls, no doors. But if I did and I knew a Carolina Wren was nesting, we love them, we would leave our door open. But I like your idea uh, of the doggy door, which was, obviously intended for your dogs but the bird's smart how about that he, he found it as a way to get in and out and uh so they, they did all right and fledged young and did they yes. did they go another year or, or was it just that one year i've seen them in other parts of the garage uh, yes in uh, in other years yes yeah and the wrens are good insect eaters so they're good neighbors to have they're they're going to get around your house and you'll see them and you think oh it's a wren it's near my house it must be a house wren that doesn't work how we identify birds. But anyway, all these wrens we're talking about will glean insects from the edges of our house and yard. And so uh, that means they're a good neighbor to have. We, we, we don't want the insects, but we want the birds. And to get the birds, we want the insects. So it's kind of a weird circle, uh, but go ahead. And Cliff, this kind of goes back to what we said, um, early, what we were talking about earlier with house sparrows people will hear that a house sparrow is a little brown bird. Yeah. And inadvertently, um, the uh, treatment that you would give to a house sparrow to keep the house sparrow from nesting is applied to a wren mm. uh, because it's, con it's seen as a little brown bird. So right. make sure you know what you're dealing with yeah. with the house sparrow. Yeah, so that is key. It, it's just because it's the bird is blue doesn't mean it's a blue bird. We already talked about that. And just because the bird is brown, and we don't like it, it doesn't mean it's a house sparrow like you just stated. So yeah, that's a that's the foundation for everything we do with birds is look to see what it is first. I can't tell you how many times people contact me with a nuisance of a bird and they wanna know how to get rid of it. Well, I need to know what it is because if it's a pigeon, it, it's very different than, than the wren that you mentioned that's coming in. So. The first thing to do with anything is figure out what critter we're talking about before you, you move on. So we've got a couple minutes left. I've got one more question for you, Pauline. So if someone listening today wants to see a bluebird for the first time, maybe they've never seen one, and let's say it's an eastern bluebird in the eastern two-thirds of the U.S., like the listening area here, what do you suggest? Where do you point them to go see their first bluebird? Well, uh just in the last month, I have realized that with eBird, it's possible to find out where birds, bluebirds are seen nearby during mm. nesting season. Nesting season is the time to look for them. It's more difficult in the winter, the, the, but nesting season, and that would be uh, uh, February, March through May, June. It would be the time to uh, look for the bluebirds. Go to you can go to eBird, and eBird has a uh, explore feature. From that, you can go to explore maps, 
In that, it's going to ask you for the name of the species, Eastern Bluebird, the month, and then the years. You can do just the current year or several years. And you put your address, your exact address, Mm -hmm. and eBird knows where it is. Mm -hmm. And it'll bring up a map of your house or your place. That's pretty. And then you can zoom out from that to see the nearest places where uh, bluebirds have been reported by people who report the birds that they see, the, which is the best time of the year. people do yeah. that. Yeah. And so you can see if there's a, a park nearby and go there. Very neat. Well, great. Well, thanks, Pauline. I really appreciate you coming in the studio today and being with us and uh, uh, talking about bluebirds. I, I'm always a fan, and, and we're both wearing blue shirts. Mine was accidental. You, you've got a badge on yours that has a bluebird, so good, that, that's awesome. So thank you so much, Pauline. My pleasure. So we're going to end tonight with a conservation tip, and that's controlling non-native fire ants. Solenopsis invicta is the Latin name for the red imported fire ant. This species is native to South America and was accidentally introduced by ship to Mobile, Alabama in the 1930s and now persists in about a dozen states. This non-native ant will continue to spread west and north until it reaches areas too arid and or too cold for its liking. The ants disperse naturally through mating flights, mass movements of colonies, and floating to new locations and floodwaters. They also can travel long distance on cars, trucks, and trains especially through shipments of nursery plants and soil. Early efforts to eradicate fire ants during the late 60s through the 70s used insecticides such as Heptachlor and Myrex, which also killed nine non-target insects and other wildlife, including birds. As homeowners and landowners, we should spot treat fire ant mounds that appear on our properties. Spot treatment as opposed to broadcast treatment avoids impacting non-target species and is better for the land. Non-native fire ants are known to impact active nests of birds in spring and summer. Investigate ways to effectively control red imported fire ants on your property while respecting the value of native species of ants and the role they play in nature. The key word here is control. Eradication is likely not an option. Part of the Latin name of the red imported fire ant, Invicta, refers to being unconquered or undefeated. Help the birds and other wildlife on your property by working diligently to control the red imported fire ant. Do it for the birds. So that concludes this evening's episode. You've been listening to Bird Calls with me, Cliff Shackleford, resident ornithologist here at Red River Radio, and our in-studio guest, Pauline Tom, with the Texas Bluebird Society. Thanks for joining us, Pauline. This show has been made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana, Tonight's episode was assisted by Kiara Lafitte, and there were several volunteers operating the phone bank. Tonight's sound file of a painted bunning was recorded by someone named Phoenix Berger and can be found at the website xenocanto.org. The photo we used for the bunting on the Bird Calls webpage was snapped by James Childress. This show will be available soon as a podcast on our website at redriverradio.org. If you have a photo or a sound clip of a bird that you'd like me to identify, you can send an email to redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Bird Calls next month at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, October 10th. And remember, do it for the birds.